I understand this water bottle is obnoxiously large. I get that. It's not lost on me, but the doctor said, if I want to get over acid reflux, I've got to drink 12 gallons of water a day. I'm joking. I would be dead if I did that. But I have to drink more water than I'm currently drinking. I have to exchange my energy drink intake, which was about five a day, with water. (laughs) I feel a lot healthier. Surprise, surprise. Everyone is shocked. Get out of town. <laughs> uh, well, I'm so um, honored to be a part of this this day with you guys, to be a part of this series, this storied series. Um, story is what connects us all because every human being has one, right? And that hasn't just begun the last, like, hundred years. That's been the way it's always been since the beginning. This is how God created us. And so when we think about um, these different places in the Old Testament, it connects us with these real people that we're reading about and we're experiencing their journey and their life. So I'm excited about this morning and uh, expecting that God will bring... Um, breakthrough, something new into your heart, into your life. Um, Before we get started, I just want to read this prayer by St. Patrick. One of the most, I think, probably well-known prayers, um, but it's just absolutely beautiful, and I think it can kind of center us today as we begin to, as we begin our time. Let's pray. I arise today through the strength of heaven, the light of the sun, the splendor of fire, the speed of lightning, the swiftness of the wind, the depth of the sea, the stability of the earth, the firmness of the rock. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's hosts to save me, afar and anear, alone or in a multitude. Christ shield me today against wounding, Christ with me, Christ before me. Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, and Christ in the ear that hears me. I arise today through the mighty strength of the Lord of creation. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're going to be talking about Elijah, and I don't know if these are the days of Elijah, but man, that song, anyone remember Days of Elijah? These, Jack and Kelly, you guys, get up here, let's sing Days of Elijah, guys. Here we go. Let's get really worshiping in this place. No, but we remember that these are the days of Elijah. Wow, maybe I'm the only one who remembers that. Uh, some few of them got me. Few of you guys get me. 
I got to reposition this water because I've actually got to access it at some point during this talk. Wow. I got to drink all this, guys, before we're dope. So let's get all that goes. By the way, I'm, I'm so glad my wife's here. She's amazing. This is Casey, everybody. And, uh, <laughs> Jay. Um, yeah, we're going to be talking about Elijah today. Um, how many of you are familiar with Elijah? Like, I, I'm not assuming everyone in here comes from a church background. This might be your very first week inside a church. We're glad you're here no matter what your background is. But how many of you are like, I'm pretty, I'm kind of familiar with Elijah. He's a semi-big deal in the Old Testament, yes. We're going to be talking about him today. If you want to go ahead and turn to 1 Kings 19, that's where we're going to be. 1 Kings 19, we're going to get through most of the passage. But before we get into that passage, um, I want to kind of set the stage for what we're going to see. Okay, so... In chapter 17, we see Elijah abruptly enter on to the public arena. He enters onto the public arena, arena prophesying. This is what he says in 1 Kings 17. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So he's got some good news for the people of Israel, right? There's a drought coming. There's famine. Now, it's interesting um, because this annunciation meets an ascendant Israel. So Elijah is in the northern kingdom. Right now, at this current moment, the northern kingdom is ruled by a man named Ahab. And no, not the guy that went after the fish for too long and died because he couldn't actually win the battle. The fish, nature is going to win, right, Ahab? Um, Sorry, that's a side note. I just, that that whole story just frustrates me. So Ahab is king of the northern kingdom. And something interesting about Ahab that I didn't really realize, Ahab is actually a very competent leader. He's competent, he's cunning, he's cruel. Um, And he has established the northern kingdom as a military and economic power in the region. And so Elijah is entering into this space, not with a depressed, kind of downtrodden group of people, but a pretty prosperous and peaceful group of people, right? The best time to give bad news is not when things are going well, okay? Just that's not generally the best time that you want to give a warning. Not only has he established, Ahab has established Israel as an economic and military power, but he's also made some really strategic connections with the kings surrounding him, particularly the king of Sidon or the Phoenicians. Phoenicians were a seafaring people, and uh, the Israelites were an agricultural people, and so they needed connection with the sea. So he makes um, a connection with the king of Phoenicia, and he takes his daughter, the princess, to be his wife. Does anyone know who, what her name is? She's, she's pretty infamous in the scriptures. Jezebel! That's right. I've heard that before. Shit, that woman's got a Jezebel spirit, praise God. Be wary of her. Yeah, Jezebel. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shorten that and just call her Jezzy, if that's okay. I know it sort of sounds weird, but, you know, it's just a long name. I don't want to have to say that whole name every single time. So, Jezebel is a pretty impressive woman. She has integrated Baal worship, which Baal is the chief god of the city that she hails from, Tyre, in Sidon. Uh, she has integrated Baal worship into the very fabric of Israelite society, and she's taken Ahab along for the ride with her. What you're going to realize pretty soon is that Jezebel runs the show, okay? 
Jezebel is the one pulling the strings. She is the one exercising the power, and Ahab is along for the ride, and he's pretty happy with that role um, we see in the scriptures. So not only is she integrating Baal worship into the, into the people of Israel's lives every day, but she's also killing Yahweh's prophets. We see that as well. So Elijah enters onto the scene. He has this declaration, this warning, and he has to be whisked right away by the Spirit of the Lord. Why? Because he probably would die. That's the end befalling many of the prophets of Yahweh. And so he goes from this very brief public foray into three years of nothing. We know what's happening, but he's not in the public eye anymore. He spends some time in the desert. He's fed by, remember what bird he's fed by in the desert? Anybody? Raven. Yes, it is a raven. He's fed by ravens in the morning. He's fed by ravens at night with bread and meat. And then he drinks from the Wadi Kishan, which a Wadi is just a seasonal stream. Eventually that dries up though, right? Because the land is going through a drought, okay? Even he is experiencing the effects of this drought, which is really interesting. And then multiple other things happen that we cannot get into, but I want to kind of fast forward us to the entrance back into the public space, which is Mount Carmel. Chapter 18, we see him engaging with Ahab, Obadiah, who is a Yahweh kind of a Yahwehist or a Yahweh sympathizer within the house of Ahab, arranges for a meeting with Elijah and Ahab because the time is right. God says, tell the people that I'm going to bring rain. So Ahab and Elijah meet, and Ahab sees Elijah for the first time, and his words are, is that you, Elijah, old troubler of Israel? And Elijah, who is basically, he goes from being completely unknown. It says uh, in the beginning of 17, he's Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba. By the way, we have no idea where Tishba is. And Tishbite just means dweller. So he is like anonymous. We don't know who Elijah is before that moment in 17, right? So he is pretty bold here. He says, Ahab, the king, he says, I'm not the one troubling Israel. You are the one who is troubling Israel by your Baal worship and idolatry. Right? Bold statements he's making with the king. With the king. So he challenges Ahab and the prophets of Baal to, or Baal, I don't know how that is. It Baal or Baal? I've heard it pronounced both ways. Baal seems more annoying to me, so I'm just going to say Baal. Uh, the prophets of Baal, 800, 800 prophets of Baal against Elijah. It's just Elijah. And they put on a show, it's a spectacle, guys. Um, they dance around, they have these, this uh, sacrifice that's made. They're asking for Baal to come and reveal himself. Of course, that doesn't happen. Elijah taunts them, uh, which is kind of funny. Uh, he taunts the prophets of Baal. Eventually, they just tucker themselves out. They're just like, okay, we're just going to rest. And then Elijah right, partners with God for this creative miracle where God descends as a fire and he consumes the offering that's been doused in water, right? Elijah's making this clear that Yahweh is the ultimate authority in Israel. And so, after that moment, he, un, this is not prodded by God. I've, had a, I've struggled with this particular part of the passage. But he takes these 800, but closer to 1,000 probably prophets to the bottom of the mountain, and by his own hand, he kills every one of them. Almost 1,000 people. Imagine killing 1,000 people with a sword. It's an intimate encounter. It's brutal. And that's what it happens. That's what he does. Ahab, of course, this entire time has become just a spectator, right? God's power has shut him up pretty quick. And so after the prophets are killed, 
um, Elijah realizes the rain's coming, and he says, okay, Ahab, get in your chariot. You better beat the rain back to Jezreel, which is sort of the capital there. And so Ahab gets in his chariot. Elijah, this is 25 miles, by the way, between Mount Carmel and Jezreel. Elijah girds up his loins. It's, it's funny. I used to play a, a game. How many people would pay Tiger 99 on Xbox? Anybody? No one played? Wow. <laughs> I was expecting everyone to raise their hands. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm glad someone is. Well, anyway, uh, David Faherty would say he's going to gird up his loins and strike it hard every single time. That's what I think about when I think gird up his loins. Anyway, that's to- totally a side note. It has no real connection to the story. But he girds up his loins. Listen, get this. 25 miles. A chariot, even in a downpour, could go about 20 miles an hour. Elijah bests Ahab to Jezreel, which means he's running at least 20 miles an hour in a downpour. (laughs) Pretty impressive, okay? So ultimately, what we've seen is a lot of things happening. But in every circumstance, Elijah is rising the occasion, and he is coming out the clear, undeniable winner. And Yahweh has established Yahweh's power through these miraculous acts. That's where we pick things up in 19. So you, you can look there with me here. First Kings 19. Everyone still with me? Everyone alive, wake out there? Praise. Okay, good. Praise. Amen. First Kings 19. Elijah arrives with two expectations. First, he expects to find a repentant Jezebel. Why does he expect that? Why do you think he expects that? Well, I think he arrives expecting to find a repentant Jezebel. Remember, she's the one who's integrated Baal worship or Baal worship into the fabric of Israelite society. Why do you think he expects her to be repentant? Because he's killed all of her folks. These were people that ate at her table at the palace. These are probably people that she knew personally, and they're all dead. All the prophets of Baal have been dispatched by Elijah. So he's expecting to come and for her to be repentant as well as Ahab and then to, for him to be established as the prophet of Israel. Remember David, right? David had two prophets during his time as king, right? Nathan and Samuel. These prophets enjoyed power. They enjoyed prestige. This was a big deal to be a prophet in ancient Israel. The kings have to go Talk to the prophets if they're going to go to war or talk to the prophets if they have domestic policies they want to try to integrate into their reign, right? Prophets were a big deal. And Elijah's expectation, I believe, which is made clear, I think, later on as we actually get into the passage, Elijah's expectation is that the power couple will be repentant and that he would be appointed to a position of power and authority. All right. 1 Kings 19. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. We quickly discover that Elijah's visions of grandeur resemble fool's gold. He arrives at Jezreel only to realize that Ahab is not a happy camper. He has a bruised ego. Notice it says he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. If I'm Elijah, I'm like, no, you didn't. You just told her the bad stuff, right? 
You told her about the people that I killed. What about the fire that was called down? Or the fact that I beat you here in your chariot, bro? That's pretty impressive. No, Ahab is angry. And he knows exactly what to say to Jezebel to get things going. And that's what he does. She's incensed. And most scholars believe here that if Jezebel really wanted to kill Elijah, she just would have done it. She sent a messenger to him. She used to have sent that messenger to him and said, okay, take a knife and do the thing. I don't think she wants him killed. I think what she wants to do is discredit him. Right? And she knows that if he becomes afraid, which he does, and he runs, think about the momentum that Yahweh has right now. It has been an undeniable victory for Elijah and for his God. But if people start talking about what happened, then they start asking this question, where's Elijah? All of a sudden, I don't know, I think he got scared, ran away. It puts less legitimacy into what happened. Maybe it was just conjured up. Maybe it wasn't really the real deal, right? And so she's trying to not necessarily kill Elijah. She's trying to discredit Elijah, the star prophet, and his God. And then chapter, or verse 3, and then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life. He came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. Integrity. How many of you have heard that word before? Everybody. When I heard that word, oftentimes I sort of heard it in the context of doing the right things, right? A man of integrity is faithful to his wife. He's present with the kid, with his kids. A woman of integrity is a, is a faithful um, spouse and partner, a faithful worker. I think about Proverbs 31, woman, right? A person of integrity does the things that reflect the goodness of God. But the word integrity actually means the quality of being whole. Elijah's reaction of fear reveals something about him. It reveals a disintegrated soul. See, Elijah has been living in a world where everything, for the most part, is working out the way it should. Obedience has yielded blessing so far. But now in this moment, this is off his script. This is not part of the plan. I thought X was going to happen, and X did not happen. And all of a sudden we see revealed within Elijah disintegration. We see a person who is not whole, but there are pieces missing. One of those pieces I believe Elijah is going to see as we continue in the passage. It reveals Elijah's disintegration. Elijah reacts to Jezebel's threat in bewilderment. He doesn't stand in confidence. This time he runs in cowardice. How different from his reaction when he's accused of being the troubler of Israel, right? And the difference is, I believe, is his expectations are not being met by God. His expectations are not being met. He is not just disappointed, but disillusioned. And now for the first time in the story of Elijah, we see fear calling the shots. Which is a lot of times what happens when we're disillusioned, isn't it? We're disappointed. It gets hard to trust God in those places. It's easy to allow fear to take over and to disconnect from our own bodies, which is exactly what Elijah does. Elijah disconnects. He's afraid. 
And his next move is a move that we would probably expect of someone who is afraid. What I'd love for us to do before we get into that, before we continue, though, I would love for you to maybe take a moment and remember your story. When is a moment where you experienced this disorienting fear when things didn't work out how you expected them to? I want us to do that. If you need to close your eyes and do that, you can, to not distract yourself. But I want you to think about a moment in your life you were maybe faithfully serving the Lord, and something happened that completely threw you off, sidetracked you. It didn't meet your expectations. And it began a disorienting, maybe even spiral for you. I want you to remember that moment if you can. Can we do that for a short time? Maybe you want to write it down, write about it for a moment or two. How you experienced it emotionally, physically, spiritually. Maybe engaging in this practice will help us empathize a little bit more fully with what Elijah is feeling right now in the passage. The once courageous and bold man of God now cowers under the weight of disorientation. As the glorious future he envisions for himself goes south in a hurry, which is exactly what he did. He fled as far away from Jezzy's influence as he possibly could, all the way to the southern kingdom at the very bottom at Beersheba. It's 150 miles as the crow flies. Remember, he just ran 25 miles beating a chariot. Pretty impressive. We don't know how long the journey took, but it comes right on the heels of the 25-mile sprint. So we can assume however long it took. He arrived at Beersheba, spent, and he leaves a servant there. So all the way at the tippy top of the northern kingdom, that's where he was, in Dan. And he goes all the way to the very bottom of the southern kingdom. At this time, Ahab is the ruler of the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel has been divided. The ruler of the southern kingdom right now is Jehoshaphat. So he is out Side of Jezebel's reach. At least you would think that he's outside of Jezebel's reach. I think he leaves a servant not because he wants to protect a servant, but because the servant's probably going to slow him down. Right? The guy's fast, okay? And so he's trying to make haste to get as far away as he possibly can. I believe at this moment, Elijah is living on some part of the spectrum of trauma. I believe he is traumatized. What's interesting about prophets is they're people. And for people, an experience common to man is trauma. All of us experience trauma in some form or fashion. And I believe based on Elijah's actions, he is experiencing a high degree of trauma. 
And there's four basic reactions psychologists tell us to trauma. Probably most of you are aware of these, but it's fight, fawn, flight, or freeze. And we see Elijah engaging in the flight response, right? And I want, to, I want us to keep in mind a few of the behaviors that we model when we're living in trauma. I want us to keep, us, keep these in mind as we continue to read this passage. Here's some of the behaviors, especially after you experience a traumatic event involving threat of life or personal injury. Emotional numbing or feeling as though you don't care about anything. Feeling detached. Being unable to remember important aspects of the trauma. Having a lack of interest in normal activities. Showing less of your moods. Avoiding places, people, or thoughts that remind you of the event. And lastly, feeling like you have no future. As we go forward in these next few verses, let's look out for these symptoms. Four through eight. Let's read that together. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. I want us to know something about God. He transforms, we'll see this very soon, he can transform a desert place into a sacred space of encounter, which is exactly what he does for Elijah at the broom tree. But that's not what Elijah's experiencing when he first gets there, right? He is experiencing complete disorientation when he arrives. So, Elijah himself is a day's journey in the desert, okay? Now, the desert in this time of the year, we believe it's the summer, it's what scholars say in this time, um, it gets around 130 degrees. That's how hot it is. So heat is life-threatening for a human being out in the desert. And we're told that Elijah finds one solitary broom tree. He doesn't have a lot of options. He's got one. But even before Elijah realizes it, God is providing for him. Because you know what is the good news? Before Elijah got to the broom tree, guess who knew who was going to be there? Yahweh. Yahweh. And he is providing for Elijah a place that can host him and revitalize his body. Which is what the the broom tree is going to become. God knows where you flee to in trauma. And he's already preparing a place to meet you. When you get there. Because he loves you. What do you do when you love someone? You meet them where they are. You don't force them to come to you. You recognize their human experience as authentic, as real. You validate it. And you meet them where they are. This is exactly what God does for and with Elijah. Isaiah 65, 24 says, It will also come to pass that before I call, or before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will listen. Before you make your need known, God is working to meet that need. This is what he's doing for Elijah. And then he makes this statement. It is enough, O Lord. been there. 
It is enough. I'm finished. Take away my life. I am no better than my ancestors. What do you think are a few things that he is experiencing emotionally as he makes that statement? This is interactive. You guys can speak. What are a few things he is experiencing? Exhaustion. Yeah. What else? Shame. Why do you think so? Hmm. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. That's good. Anything else? Exhaustion, shame. Definitely believe those are a part of his experience in this moment. What else? Disappointed. Yeah. Yes. Anger. Yeah. Why? Why do you be angry? I think I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely seems angry to me as well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I agree. It's interesting. Um, that when we're exhausted, our brain can actually go offline into a different mode. It gets irrational, reactionary, racing. Psychologists call this place lizard brain, which a lizard can't survive in the desert. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it's lizard brain. Elijah contracts, I believe, a fatigue-induced dementia and a complete loss of perspective of reality. His body is shutting down because even though he has been acting in the power of God, his body is still keeping count. Your body always keeps count. This is why it is vitally important that we do not build a relationship with God on doing for him, but on being with him. That is the only way forward in health with God, which does not mean we don't do for him, but it means that's not the foundation of our relationship. That has been, on some level, I believe, the foundation of Elijah's relationship with God based upon his own reaction. I want you to think about the difference between that statement, it is enough. Jesus on the cross makes a pretty profound statement. That sounds a little bit like the one Elijah made, but it's not anything like it. He says, it is finished. Elijah says, I am finished. I believe when we get to the end of ourselves, God's work is just beginning. And we're going to see that with Elijah. God begins to care for Elijah because the good news for Elijah is the good news for us that in our weakness, he is strong. And he wants to care for us, but we have to allow him to do that. 
So we see Elijah's disintegrated soul, but we see God's attunement to his needs at the tree that I can't remember the name of. The broom tree. There you go. Oh, by the way, I thought broom tree, like I just think about witches for some reason, and it's, you know, I mean, it is Halloween, Hallow's Eve, or uh, Fall Festival. Forgive me. Fall Festival. I don't want to get into witchcraft, y'all, okay? You've got to be careful. <laughs> um, Jesus says, it is finished. The work is complete. My life has been poured out for others. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 11 says, But he said this to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then, this paradoxical statement, then I'm strong. That makes no sense in the eyes of the world, by the way. Independence is what you would strive for in the eyes of the world to be strong. But in the, in the way of Christ, dependence is the way up, not independence. So he makes this really profound, provocative statement, and then he falls asleep. It's really interesting. Um, the death wish is a pretty common experience for prophets. Moses asked God to take his life. Jeremiah asked God to take his life. Job asked God to take his life. Some of the greatest characters in the Old Testament asked God to kill them. This is not a unique experience that Elijah is going through right now. This is a very common prophetic experience in the Old Testament. But he lay down under the broom tree and he fell asleep. God is offering rest and respite when we are living frenetic and fatigued. Elijah is in a place where he cannot go on anymore, and so he exhausted falls asleep. For the first time in the story, by the way, we see this posture of Elijah. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, just the latter half says, Come to me, all who are weary, and I'll give you more stuff to do. I'll give you something else. Keep going. Don't stop. Gosh. You got to do for me. No. He says, come to me, I'll hurry weary, and I'm going to give you what I gave Elijah, what I gave everyone in this place, rest. And that's what he's offering you and me today. And this is amazing. I love this next part. Suddenly, uh, verses, uh, the latter half of five through eight. This is crazy, guys. Suddenly, an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. And he looked there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down. (laughs) The angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. Look at the nonchalance of Elijah. And angel's like, hey, man, it's, it's just him and the broom tree, guys. There's, this is in the middle of nowhere, the Negev Desert. It is hot. He is almost probably on some level dying. What's really interesting to me is guess what he doesn't do when he goes out to the desert? Take food with him or any provisions at all. It seems like he wants to die. Right? So this statement is not just hyperbole. 
but it's actually the desire of his heart on some level. That's scary stuff. The angel's like, hey, hey, did you see that? There's food there. It's, McD- it's McDonald's. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, it's not McDonald's. I really hope it's better than that. <clears throat> Elijah, he gets up, he looks at the food, he eats it, and he goes back to sleep. He goes back to sleep. That blows my mind. He's gotten so used to the miraculous that it does not cause wonder anymore. And I think there's also a level that he is, his mental, the place he's at mentally, it is keeping him from actually engaging in the miraculous. And by the way, God knows trauma does that. That's why he's patient and kind. And he doesn't judge Elijah. If it were me, I'd be like, hey man, I just gave you food out of nowhere. What are you doing? You're going to go back to sleep now. Great, good. Yeah, yeah, you sleep. You sleep. No, God gives him space to sleep and doesn't expect him to praise him and shout and dance and quote 50 psalms because he knows what trauma does to the body and to the mind. He's patient and he's kind. God is not only a provider in the moment, but he's incredibly patient even when Elijah seems ungrateful. And during the second encounter, the angel explains the reason why Elijah must eat. This is really interesting. Because the way is too much for you. The Hebrew points back to Elijah's complaint in verse 4 that it was too much. Remember the first statement he made? Enough, Lord. Right? The angel uses that same language in the frank assessment of what lies ahead. God is always providing because that is who God is. He is provider. And most of the time, we, like Elijah, and because of circumstances, our minds are clouded and our our senses are distracted, and we don't actually notice the daily provisions that we have from God. What does God give Elijah? He gives him food. He gives him shelter. He gives him water. What do I have every single day? Food, shelter, water. I don't wake up every morning, oh, Lord, I am just, wow. You are so good. This water is delicious. Gross. I hate this water. But I've got to drink it. Thank you, Lord. It's again. Okay. Right? We're not waking up dancing for joy, but God is providing for you every day. God is providing for me every day. It says this, strengthened by that. Where are we on time? Are we like crazy over right now on time? Are people just going to get up and start leaving at a protest? I was like, guys, I don't know what I said. All right. Strengthened by that food, it says, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Mount Horeb, the Mount of God, where he went to a cave and spent the night. Now, really interesting. I know that number 40 days and 40 nights is not familiar to you at all, right? Never heard it before, right? No. How many, what name you a place where you've heard that number in the scriptures? What's a place? Noah's Ark, yeah, that's, that's probably the most notable one. What else? Exodus, yeah, that's right. Jesus in the desert, where else? Moses, that's right, yeah. It occurs over 100 times in the scriptures. And there's two possibilities. First, it can be an actual amount of time, 40 days and 40 nights, right? That's how long a human being can go without uh, food, by the way. It's 40 days, scientifically speaking. 
But it can also be hyperbole. It can also be a way of saying a long time. Okay, like imagine you're talking to someone and say, yeah, dude, for the millionth time, you haven't asked that person a million times or said something a million times. It's hyperbole. And so that could be what's happening here because here's the interesting thing. To get from where he's at in the desert to Mount Horeb, which is where he's going, it wouldn't take 40 days and 40 nights. It just, that, that distance doesn't compute. So most likely what's happening here is the scripture saying it was a long, hard journey that Elijah made. Again, most likely as an elderly individual, right? And without God's provision at the broom tree, Elijah would have never made it to the mountain, which is why we can't look past the ordinary places where God meets us, right? And I'm really impressed by this food because it's got to be like the best RX bar like ever. How does this even happen? It's got to be packed with steroids, perhaps speed to the drug, Probably some uh, uh, acai berries. I don't know how to say that. Acai. Krispy Kreme. Yeah. No, that would weigh Elijah down, man. You know, like, oh, God, I should not have eaten that. Angel, what was he thinking? <laughs> Bread, really? Oh. Um, so he goes in that string, that food to Mount Horeb. Okay, interesting reality here. Mount Sinai, where Moses receives the Ten Commandments where he's hidden in the cleft of the rock, where the people disobey and they're judged, right? And Mount Horeb, where Elijah goes, are the same place. So Elijah goes from the most ordinary of places, the, the um, humble broom tree, to the most sacred place in Israelite imagination, Mount Horeb. The mountain of God is what it's called in the text. But without the ordinary place and God meeting him there, he would have never made it to the mountain. He would have been dead. He wouldn't have made it. And so that's where we see this cavern of recommissioning. So the first like big point that we talked about was that God can take a desert place and he can create a place of encounter. I think something of that nature. I think I'm saying part of that wrong, but yeah, it's close enough. (laughs) It's close enough. This is the second big point I want us to get. Silence is a gift from God that allows us the space to hear his voice. Silence is a gift from God that allows us the space to hear his voice. He, the word of the Lord, we're going to skip. It's complicated. We don't have time to get into it. But we have sort of what seems like a a repetition in the text, okay? So we're actually going to kind of skip past 10a. We're just trying to cover a whole chapter. That's a lot of work. So we're going to abbreviate a little bit. So we're going to go to verse 11 here. He, the word of the Lord said, um, the word of the Lord is the one speaking here. He, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now, there was a great wind. How many of you guys remember this, this text, right? Yeah, there was a great wind. Okay, good. There was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of sheer silence. God had appeared in all those elements before. And in the public place, those elements can grab and arrest people's attention. But in the private place, what Elijah needed was not a spectacle, but silence. 
Spectacle cannot sustain relationship with God. And if that's what we're depending on is public spectacle, guess what we're going to have? A deficient faith. We need the silent, intimate moment where God invites us in, which is exactly what happens with Elijah. We've got some more stuff here, but I want to try to abbreviate a little bit. And then when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. He wrapped his face in his mantle because there was a belief that if you looked at the face of God, you would die. Hence, God hiding Moses in the cleft of the rock, right? He did that for Moses' own good. And Moses glimpsed the back of his head as he passed by, right? And so he's covering not just his mouth, he's covering his whole face because he wants to protect his being from this being that is the I am, right? And there came a voice and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? The first statement that we see first person from the Lord is after silence. And he doesn't make a statement. He asks a question. Now, I want to ask you this. What is the tone that you hear when God asks that question? What are you doing here? But it's not necessarily the one we experience, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Here's what's important. In the Genesis account, what does God ask Adam and Eve? He asks Adam and Eve, where have you been? Is he asking them that out of condemnation or out of care for them? See, I don't believe this statement is an indictment of Elijah. I believe he's making this statement for the purpose of Elijah's enlightenment. He wants Elijah to understand the location, not just of his body, but of his mind and his spirit. He's wanting Elijah to understand what's going on and to think, to reflect, which is what he wants us all to do. And I'm going to, gosh, we just don't have time. I really undershot how long this was going to take. I was like, yeah, 10 minutes will be good. 10 minutes will be good. Um, so, let's get to the end here. As we gather this morning, I wonder, what is our proximity to the broom tree? I don't mean literally. I mean, what common places are we inhabiting that God is creating sacred space of encounter in? Do we notice what God is doing for us? If we don't, it might be because we're enduring some level of trauma. We feel frenetic and fatigued, unable to clear the cobwebs and actually notice. But here's the good news. God understands. He knows how hard it is to be human because he was human. He wants to surprise us with his gentleness and his care. He wants to draw us in to the silence just like he did Elijah. And when he has our attention, I believe he will ask us all that deep and important question. What are you doing here? If your answer to that question is similar to Elijah's, then you're in good company. Let's pray. We come seeking God in mighty earthquakes. We come listening for God in resounding thunder. We come expecting God in sweeping victories. Yet God is found in a baby's touch. Yet God speaks in silence. Yet God is found in the least of these. Save us, O God, from our aimless wandering. 
Save us, O God, from our idols. Save us, O God, from our self-induced chaos. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. Now let's continue to worship. Let's stand together. Let's continue just to reflect on that question. What are you doing here? As we worship, as we sing, begin to partner with the Holy Spirit and notice.